love you and we thank you, Lord, for the blood of the Lamb. And we thank you, Lord, that we've been made whole, not by our efforts or our good works, but by your great grace. Lord, I pray tonight as we go to your word again that you would be our teacher. Give us ears to hear what your spirit would say to us tonight. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Good to see you. If you have your Bibles, turn to Deuteronomy 29. If you don't have your Bibles, raise your hand because you're going to need one. Amen? Anybody need a Bible? Don't be shy. Right over here. All right. Deuteronomy. I titled the message tonight, Turning Back to God. And if you've been here on Wednesday nights, as you very well know, we've talked about how that this is the fifth book of the Pentateuch. Penta meaning five. And it is called Deuteronomy, which means second law or second giving of the law. And this was originally handed down by God to the children of Israel at Mount Sinai. It was only necessary, again, because to be repeated now because of the rebellion of the first generation. The law had been given once, it should have been enough. But that entire generation rebelled against God, and because they did and they refused to enter into the land of promise, they ended up dying in the wilderness. Now the next generation as we're going to see tonight, has gotten right to the border of Canaan. God's done great and awesome work. He's preparing them to go in. And now, in tonight's chapter, He's going to, again, remind them of what they've been through. He's going to talk to them about the blessings of walking in obedience, but also He's going to warn them about the judgment to come. Now, here's the thing. If you had to read one chapter in Deuteronomy to understand the whole book, this would be the one. Because this is a miniature snapshot of the entire book. Because exactly what happens in this book, in this chapter, is really what happens in the entire book. Again, it begins, the first eight chapters of Deuteronomy speaks of what God had done previously. What God had delivered them from coming out of Egypt. In tonight's text, the first eight verses do that. We then see later, again, as you continue on through Deuteronomy, the, the encouragement of walking in blessing, and then the warning of walking in rebellion and the curses that would come. And that's exactly what tonight's chapter is all about. Now, this entire book filled with Moses giving these full and exhaustive discourses was given to remind again this next generation, first all of what God had done for them, and to call them to enter into a covenant with the Lord. Their parents had entered into the covenant. They had said, okay, we agree. We'll talk about that tonight. The parents said, we agree, but did they do it? No. So, even though their parents had said, we agree, and then didn't do it, it still was the next generation that was called upon individually that they too must make a stand before God and must make a covenant or a promise to the Lord. We cannot be saved through our parents. We cannot be saved, and we, you know what else? We can't be lost because of our parents either. Sometimes we think, oh, because of my parents, I have no hope. Or sometimes we think because, you know, the person I've been, my kids have no hope. That's not the case at all. And we'll see that in tonight's text. So Deuteronomy is a calling and an opportunity for this next generation to turn back to God here in tonight's chapter. He's really going to be calling them. It's your turn now. You have to make a decision about the Lord to warn them again of the consequences of sin, the promised judgment to come. Now God's greatest desire is that we would walk in intimate fellowship with Him. He loves us enough not only to provide a way of deliverance, but also a way of fellowship. And also to bring divine discipline because He loves us. So maybe you're here tonight, and you've been delivered, you've been born again, you're a Christian. But you know what? Your walk with God's not what it's supposed to be, and you know it. 
There's rebellion in your walk. You're not really spending time with the Lord like you should. If people watched your life, you'd doubt they'd even know you were a Christian. Maybe you're a person here, again, who's wandering aimlessly in your walk. There's no real direction. Or again, you could just be in flat-out rebellion against God. It's hard to imagine to be here on a Wednesday night if that were the case, but you never know. And it's a divine appointment that all of us is going to be exhorted tonight to turn back to God. Because that's what he's saying to the children of Israel. Turn back to God. And maybe you're here tonight and you need to hear that message. To give Him the proper place upon the throne of your life. To make Him more than just your Savior, but, but your Lord as well. And you know what? Maybe tonight's going to be a time that you're going to be encouraged to rededicate your life to the Lord. Because again, you've allowed things in your life. And again, maybe you're coming to church on Sunday and Wednesday. And you are reading your Bible on occasion. But you know what? Your walk's dry. You don't have that joy of the Lord you used to have. You're kind of aimless. You don't even have real, have real spiritual direction for your life. You know what? If God is in, on the throne like He should be, those things would not be true. Now again, we all struggle at times in our walk, don't we? Amen? There's times when we're doing great in our walk with the Lord, and there's times when we struggle. And tonight he's talking to a group where their parents had fallen away. They have every excuse in the world not to serve God with their whole heart. And he's going to exhort them as a nation, the nation of Israel, to turn back to God. So as I said, Deuteronomy 29 is really kind of the cliff notes of Deuteronomy. It's a shortcut. If you just read through it, you get a taste of the entire book. And as Moses speaks through again this renewing of the covenant, he will follow the same pattern as we've talked about in the entire book. So we're going to start again, if you're taking notes, he's going to remind them what God had done for them, delivering them. Then he's going to call them to walk in obedience. And then lastly, he's going to warn them of God's righteous judgment. So again, before they could enter into the land of promise, they had to turn from their rebellion. Before they could enter into the land of promise. Now those of you who've been coming, it'll be reviewed, but that's okay. We need to hear it again. Bondage in Egypt, type of the world, sin. They were delivered out of bondage. They crossed over the Red Sea, a picture, a type of water baptism. As they're in the wilderness, headed to the land of promise, it's again that walk that we have with God. But then the Jordan River is a type of Holy Spirit baptism. And then when they cross over the Jordan into the land flowing with milk and honey, the land of promise, that's a type or a picture of the Spirit-filled life. They're about to enter into the Spirit-filled life Type, you know, typologically, but they couldn't enter in until there was repentance and restoration. The same is true for all of us. If we're in rebellion, there must first be repentance and restoration before we can walk in that spirit-filled life in the center of God's will and experience all that God has for us. This is exactly where the children of Israel are when we come to this chapter. They're capped right outside the land. And so, again, for you and I, it can be a picture of where we're at spiritually. So let's begin in verse 1. Turning back to God, remembering first all that God had done for them. These are the words of the covenant which the Lord commanded Moses to make with the children of Israel in the land of Moab, besides the covenant which he made with them in Horeb. Now the word covenant is used seven times in this chapter, and in Hebrew the word means to cut. And what in the world does that have to do with an agreement or a promise? Well in those days when they made an agreement, they would take animals... And they would cut them in half. And they would separate them and put them on either side. And then those who made the agreement would walk through these bloody animals as a way of making this commitment to each other. Now, why in the world would they do that? Again, it was a picture of the, of the seriousness of this vow or agreement they were entering into. And some even believe it was them saying, look, if I break this agreement, then this is what's going to happen to me. What happened to these animals? Let, my life be, let me be torn apart if I do not fulfill this. 
It was a very, very serious promise or vow or commitment or agreement. That's what covenant meant. And so this covenant is between God and Israel. And it's interesting, back in Sinai, when this covenant was made, they did just this. They split the animals in half. Moses walked through the middle. God, of course, in type did as well. And then Moses picked up blood and sprinkled the blood on the people. And it was his way of saying, okay, and they agreed and said, we will do all that the covenant says, and the blood came out upon them. And it was them saying, you know, the blood be upon us if we do not walk in obedience to God. We are ready to take the judgment that will come because we agree with what God has said. And so that's this covenant or this promise that's being made. And again, Moses read the entire covenant at Sinai, and they walked through the blood. Now, the land of Moab is, again, right outside of Canaan. And it's that place where they're getting ready to enter in to the most holy place. or the, Not the most holy place, but the land of promise. Now, what's interesting here is it says the covenant which he made at Horeb. Who knows where Horeb is? It's another word for Sinai. It's just Mount Sinai. Doesn't it bother you when they do that in the Bible? Why do you got to have four names for the same place? Now, God didn't do that. They just, people name things. And you know what, though? There's always a reason, amen? You go back and look up the meanings of the names, and you'll find out exactly why. But for the most part, the generation that had been there and the blood had been sprinkled on them at Sinai, most of them are dead now because they died in the wilderness. And the ones that hadn't died were very young. It had been, you know, they were teenagers at the oldest because everybody 20 or older died in the wilderness. And so now they were very young, and now the reminder is coming. Now, there's not going to be a blood covenant this time, and the reason is because the covenant's already been made. This is just a repeat of the same covenant. He's just reminding them of the commitment God has already made to Israel and is calling them to make the same commitment back to God that the previous generation had. The previous generation was a generation of unbelief. Would this be a generation of faith or a generation of unbelief? Would they finally obey where their fathers had disobeyed? Well, for the most part, at least initially, they did. Now Moses is going to reconfirm this covenant, and each generation, it's important to notice, has an impact on the next one. We can't blame the previous generation, but we do have an impact on our kids. And we, and we are impacted by our parents. Don't blame it on mom and dad for your disobedience. But at the same time, as a mom and dad, we need to know that the way we raise our kid is, kids is going to impact them for a lifetime. And it's so important that we be spiritual moms and dads in our homes. Verse 2. Now Moses called all of Israel and said to them, You have seen that the, what the Lord did, seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh, to all his servants, and to all his land. So now he's reminding them. Just like he did at Sinai, now he's reminding them. Let me remind you all that God has done for you. It's been 40 plus years since Sinai. Time has gone by. Generations passed away. You need to be reminded what God did for you. And so what were the things that they had seen? He said, all that the Lord you had seen before your eyes. Again, some of the teenagers, and I, no doubt, if you're seven or eight years old and the plagues came, I'm thinking you're going to remember those. Even 40 years later, you're going to go, oh yeah, I remember that. I remember driving with my parents one time. We're driving to Missouri in a convertible and the biggest hailstorm I've ever seen. I was probably four. And I remember, you know, when big old rocks are landed on your hood and you're in a convertible, that's not good. You know, you remember, you remember that stuff. I remember being a kid and crawling up in the, in the front seat next to my parents, you know, like, you know, whoa. Now, if you're seven or eight years old and you've seen all the plagues that are coming down on Egypt, you're going to remember that. But he's reminding them, he's reminding the previous generation. Now, what had they seen? They had seen all the plagues. 
They had seen the death of the firstborn, the Red Sea parted, the Egyptian army destroyed, victories that were won by prayer, manna falling from heaven. They drank water from a rock. They heard God's voice come from Mount Sinai and the earth shake. They saw the cloud of his presence. They followed the cloud in the wilderness and they saw the defeat of great armies. All of those things are by the mighty hand of God. And he reminds them, hey, remember what God did for you? Let me remind you. For you and I today, what do we need to remember? What do we need to remember? The cross. Amen? May it never grow common. May we never get to the point, yeah, the cross, Jesus died on the cross, that's right. We, we should never be that way. That's why we have communion. It's to remember the work of the cross. He's reminding them of all God has done for them. The cross is a constant reminder to us for all of what God has done for us. Amen? That he was willing to suffer and die that we might have eternal life. Now again, as Moses is sharing this, it may seem overly repetitious. I've had people say to me quite a bit recently, Pastor Dave, you repeat things a lot. I go, yeah, so you'll remember. Amen? And you know what? I, I've been studying the Bible a long time, and I'll go through a chapter I've taught 20 times, and God will still teach me more. We need to hear it again and again and again. Amen? And if we don't, it's hard for us to remember. And that's what Moses is doing. He's reminding them again. Here it is again. I'm telling you again all that God has done for you. Because too often God's people forget what they should remember, and we remember what we ought to forget. Verse 3. The great trials which your eyes have seen, the signs and those great wonders. So again, all the signs that they saw outside of Egypt. So along with what happened in Egypt, then going outside of Egypt and seeing the mighty hand of God at work in every aspect of their life. He's saying, that's the God that we serve. Remember what God has done for you. Verse 4. Yet the Lord has not given you a heart to perceive and eyes to see and ears to hear to this very day. While Israel had witnessed the, the miracles physically, their hearts was, were still hardened spiritually. You know, miracles in and of themselves could not accomplish anything in the heart of Israel. And you know what? They can't today either. Have you ever had someone tell to you, if God would just heal my grandfather, then I'd believe? You ever heard that before? And you know what? I've had people who've told me that. I prayed for a guy whose dad was covered head to toe in cancer. They'd give him a short amount of time to live. Our whole youth group in Lancaster prayed for him. This guy was an atheist who never wanted me to talk to him about the Lord. When I mentioned praying for his dad, for the first time he said, Would you please? And all I said to him was, If God chooses in his infinite wisdom to heal your dad, then you give God the glory. He says, If he heals my dad, I'll believe. Guess what? His dad got healed. And you know what? He still didn't believe. He still tried to explain it away. Why? Because you know what? There's a steer, still a searing over of the conscience. There's still scales on the eyes. And that was happening to the children of Israel. God had done all these great and miraculous works, and yet they still had not had a change of heart. It's, salvation doesn't come here. It comes here. It's a transformed heart. It's a heart broken over our sin and our desperate need for the Lord. It's not just a change of mind, it's a transformed heart that produces both salvation, obedience, and lasting fruit. In Deuteronomy 5, it says this, Oh, that there was such a heart in them that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always, that it might be well with them and their children forever. So what produces obedience? A heart for God. Not a mind for God. Now, we are to serve God with our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Amen? But you know what? It's a heart for God that, that serves them with reckless abandon. That doesn't try to outthink things. You know, God said, I'm doing it. That's it. But what about, I don't care what about, I'm doing it. Because God said, 
Apostle Paul, you've been beaten five times. You've been beaten with rods a day and night in the deep. They stoned you at Lystra. I don't care. God told me I'm going. That's it. Amen? And by the way, I've seen heaven, and it's better there anyway, so they can kill me, as we saw on Sunday. Kill me, I'll be in heaven. You can't threaten me with heaven. Now, that's Paul's heart, and again, that's someone whose heart is set apart to God. And he says, you guys have seen the miracles. You don't have a heart for me. And this is why you continue to stumble and struggle. May we have hearts set apart to the Lord. God had not only delivered them out of bondage in Egypt, but he had provided for them and protected them in the, in the wilderness. Look at verse 5. And I have led you 40 days in the wilderness, and your clothes have not worn out on you, and your sandals have not worn out on your feet. Talk about God's provision in the practical. God cares about the practical. Did you know that? And can you imagine? Now, it doesn't say it here, but I believe that this means that their clothes grew with them. I really believe, I believe that if they grew, so did their clothes. If their feet got bigger, so did their sandals. If he can make them not wear out, he can make them grow, amen? He's God. It says they didn't wear out on their feet. They weren't changing shoes. So they were on their feet. They didn't wear out. Man, you talk about Levi's think they're bad. Look at this. Forty years, and they didn't wear out. God's provision, and God's provision is perfect. Verse 6. You have not eaten bread, nor have you drunk wine or similar drink, that you may know that I am the Lord your God. Now what does that mean? Well, you know what? They were wandering in the wilderness, so there was no time to plant crops. And there was no time to plant a vineyard. And there was no time to harvest grain, and no time to harvest grapes. But yet, they were never hungry, and they were never thirsty. And this is two million people in the desert. At least two million, maybe three million. Now think about that. You've got to have a lot of water. And God provided water from the rock. And he rained manna from the sky. And why did he do it? So they would know that he's God. And you know what? Sometimes we have to come to a place of desperation so that we can know that he's God. Where, we don't, where our, our crops have failed and the vineyard, ha vineyard hasn't grown and we're out of work or whatever's going on. And we get to see God's hand at work. And it's only through those times of difficulty that we ultimately get to see God move in the most mighty and powerful way. Again, God provided for them supernaturally. Now he's reminding them of all this. Why? So as the covenant's about to be made, they'll say, man, God did all of that. I can trust God to do everything else. When we look back and see what God has done, we can trust him to take care of the rest. Amen? We know he's been faithful. He's going to be faithful. And that's the God that we serve. God provided them in seemingly impossible circumstances. And that's an opportunity to grow. And when you came to this place, Sihon, king of Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan, came out, against, came out against us to battle, and we conquered them. Now, this is just a short verse, but you've got to remember, who were these guys? They were giants. You remember, why did the first generation quit? Giants. They went in and said, oh, there's giants in the land. They're going to squash us like grasshoppers. Run away. Keep running. Right? And they just bailed out. They said, we're out of here. But God had said, I already gave you the land. Just obey me. And that was the reason that they died in the wilderness. They saw the giants and they ran away. And you know what? These guys saw the giants. They believed God's word. They trusted what he said. They went into battle and they wiped them out. And Og was so big that he made Goliath look like a pipsqueak. This guy was huge. And you know what's awesome about it? Remember, these guys are Israelites. They were slaves. They're not showing up in chariots. These guys aren't showing up mighty warriors, right? 
These guys were slaves who were, you know, who hadn't eaten well, and now they're traveling in the wilderness out in the desert. They don't have a fort to hide, hide behind. You know what they have? They've got on their side. And God is for us, who can be against us? And they went and fought the giants of the land, and they wiped them out. A nation of slaves does not conquer standing nations with great armies and take their land unless God is on their side. Verse 8. We took their land and gave it as an inheritance to the Reubenites, to the Gadites, and half the tribe of Manasseh. Now, if you guys were here, we went through numbers. God gave them the victory, and if you remember, two and a half tribes decided just to stop. You guys remember that story? What happened was they came in, they wiped out the enemy, and then these two and a half tribes looked around and said, this land right here is pretty good. And it's great for cattle, and we got a lot of cattle. So why don't we just hang out out here? Why should we have to cross over the Jordan and go into the land of promise? I know there's some more giants over there we'd have to fight. I mean, we already wiped out some giants. That's enough. Let's just stay here. Now, we talked about the types. The Jordan being Holy Spirit baptism, crossing over into God's highest, or the land flowing with milk and honey, the ultimate spirit-filled life. You know what? These guys were satisfied with less than God's highest. They said, you know what? It's comfortable here. I don't want to have to push myself spiritually. I don't want to be stretched. I don't want to face any more enemies. You know, the housing's cheaper on this side of the Jordan. It pays a little better. I mean, right? And this is what can happen to every single one of us. We can get complacent in our walk we can be satisfied just outside of god's highest we're serving god but we're not sold out for god we love him but you know what we're just not ready to fight any more enemies i've done my time i'm good i help out enough i don't have to be that radical for god and you know what's sad is they had a lot of cattle the gadarenes and you heard me talk about this because guess what later when jesus goes to the gadarenes they're herding what pigs their cows turned to pigs. Why? Because they didn't enter into the land of promise. They missed out on God's highest. The two and a half tribes said, it's good out here. It's green enough out here. You know what? May we never be satisfied with less than God's highest. Amen? I know it's an exhortation to all of us. It's an exhortation to me. May we not be happy with less than what God would have for us. May we not have saved souls and wasted lives. May we not, again, be born again, new creations in Christ, but not willing to just live reckless abandon for the Lord like we've been seeing with the Apostle Paul on Sunday. The land had already been conquered. There was no more battle. It was good for cattle. Let me just stay where it's comfortable. And again, they were moved by their circumstances and a desire for personal comfort, and they settled for less than God's highest. And Moses is reminding them that all that God had done for them, all that God had delivered them from, and as you and I need to be reminded, never allowing, again, the cross of Christ to go common. He wants to remind him, God did great and awesome things. Don't settle for less than God's highest. Here's what he's done for you. And he did all that to keep them desperate and broken with a heart of worship. And that should be the same for us. So turning back to God. First thing we've seen is the reminder for all of them what God had done. And that's where we begin. Remember what God had done. Now look at the call to walk in obedience. Verses 9 through 15. Therefore, keep the words of this covenant and do them that you may prosper in all that you do. So, in light of all that God has done for you, obey Him. Obedience to God should not be a burden. Amen? 
It shouldn't be, oh, I've got to obey. It'd be really fun to go party tonight, but that, you know, God will get mad at me, right? I mean, it shouldn't be like that. It should be, you know what? The same God who suffered and died on the cross and loves me so much commanded me to do this because he loves me. He knows what's best for me, and I trust him more than I trust my fleshly desires, and I'm going to obey him. I'm going to obey him. I'm going to honor him. I'm going to walk in obedience to the Lord. And he says, keep the words of this covenant. Now look at this. Our God's so awesome because he says, if you keep the words, then what will happen? Then you'll prosper. In light of all that Israel had seen God do for them, in the light of the greatness of God's love and his power, Israel should have been committed more than ever to this covenant. And so too should you and I, in light of God's incredible grace, all that he suffered for us, so too should you and I have this desire to obey him. Does God care if we obey or not? We've been talking about this on Sunday. Does God care? Yes, he does. He cares deeply that we obey. Because again, he's not a God trying to make you prove that you love him by obeying. He's a God that proves how much he loves you by giving you his truth to obey. Giving you something that will keep you from harm. A desire to walk in obedience to God completely, to live lives of loving devotion and intimacy with God, rather than lives of lukewarmness and compromise. You know, that's, that's a sad statement, but that's the church today. The church today walks in compromise and lukewarmness. That is a fact. Look around. Are we impacting the world? Is the world impacting us? I mean, you look at the United States. How big of an impact is the church having on the United States? We're supposed to be a Christian nation, amen? But you know what? Too often, we want to be just like the world. We want to be as much like the world as we can be and still go to heaven. And as we've seen throughout this book, and most specifically Deuteronomy 28, when you're obedient, you're blessed. When you rebel, consequences come. And probably the greatest blessing of all in walking in obedience to God is intimate fellowship with the Lord. You know what's incredible to me? That we can have intimate fellowship with the creator of the universe. You can walk in, and you can hear him whisper. You can have that kind of relationship with Almighty God. And it comes from a heart broken before Him, desperate for, before Him, and walking in obedience to His Word, saying, Lord, I trust You. Lord, my life belongs to You. I'm not going to do things my way. I'm going to do them Your way. With that obedience comes great blessing. But as we're going to see in a few verses, with rebellion comes cursing and judgment. And again, the greatest blessing of all is that intimate fellowship with God. And you know what else happens when you walk in obedience? Whether you even try or not, you become a great testimony. People see your walk and they see something different because they see Jesus in you. We can either be a great testimony or another hypocrite. Is that true or not? We can either be a great testimony and go, wow, something's different about you. How come everybody else is wigging out around here and you're not? How come when they, you know, they told us this is happening, everybody's, ah, and you're just like, hey, God's in control. Why is that? Because you really know God. You don't know about Him, you know Him, amen? And you've seen what He's done for you in the past, and you know what He's going to do for you in the future, and you trust Him. And it's walking in the sovereignty of God and knowing that He's in control, knowing that He's faithful, that should bring, bring peace to every heart. Verse 10, all of you stand today before the Lord your God, your leaders and your tribes and your elders and your officers and all the men of Israel. Now He's going to call them all together, but he starts off with the leaders. And I think there's a significance behind that. Because if the leaders aren't walking with God, then what hope is there for those who are following them? If those who lead are not following God, sold out and set apart, how in the world are those who follow them going to have any hope to do the same? Because again, as parents, our children are watching. As a pastor, 
My heart is, first and foremost, my relationship with the Lord. But you know what? I know for a fact that everything I do impacts this church. And so you know what? I, I make it my heart to walk in purity and holiness for the Lord. I'm a sinner saved by grace just like everybody else. In desperate need of Almighty God, and I blow it all the time. But you know what? My heart is to be an example in the way that I treat my family, in the way that I love my wife, in the, in the entertain, things I choose to entertain myself, the where, place I live, the clothes I wear, everything. Why? Because if I cannot be an example, if the pastors cannot be an example, if you Sunday school teachers cannot be an example to the kids, what hope is there for those who are following your example? And so he calls the leaders first. And he says, okay, all of Israel, come forward. And the leaders first. But you're going to notice that it wasn't just the leaders. Look what he says. Your little ones and your wives, also the stranger who is in your camp, from the one who cuts your wood to the one who draws your water. All of Israel was included in God's desire to enter into the covenant, to be a people for himself. And again, I love the fact that he wasn't just looking for a few prominent and talented people or just one tribe to serve him. He wanted to have that covenant relationship with everybody. The Bible says it is his desire that none should perish. No, not, not one. Amen? And God's desire is to have intimate fellowship with every one of us. And too often we think, well, I'm just not that important. You know, I don't have a position. I don't have a title. I don't have a specific ministry with my name on it. You're all in the ministry. Amen? All of us. Divine appointments. Can I encourage you, when you're walking through Safeway, you're in the ministry. Because you're the salt and light of Safeway. And that person in line behind you is there by divine appointment. And that person sits in the cubicle next to you, and the person that's driving in front of you, remember that next time, when they're driving in front of you or behind you, every one of those is a divine appointment. And we're all in the ministry, and God desires to have that covenant relationship with every single person in this room, not just Billy Graham. Amen? He says the little ones and the young ones, the person, look, from their perspective, the one who cuts your wood and the one who draws your water. The person with the, quote, lowest stature in the world, God says, I want them there, and I want to have covenant relationship with them too. And I want them to make a pledge to me, and I want to make a pledge to them, and I want to use them in a mighty and a powerful way. God wanted the whole nation to be his people, not just a few. Verse two, 12, that you may enter into covenant with the Lord your God, into his oath, which the Lord your God makes with you today, that he may establish you today as a people for himself, that he may be God to you, just as he has spoken to you, just as he has sworn to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. His desire was that all might enter into that covenant relationship with the Lord. And again, in Jeremiah it says, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. Now this covenant continued until when? When did this covenant end? Did this covenant end? There it is. It ended at the cross. Are we in the old covenant anymore? Are we dragging lambs in here? Cutting throats? And are, we, are we going through the Holy of Holies anymore and sprinkling blood on the... We're not doing that anymore, amen? And at the same time, this covenant between God and Israel was broken and the rebellion at the cross. Now, I want to say this. Does God still have a plan for Israel? Is he still going to do great things with them? Without question. But guess what? They're in rebellion right now. And because of that rebellion, they're outside of his will. And because of that, they're going through some tragic stuff. And we're going to talk about this as we go through the rest of the chapter. 
But this covenant right here with the children of Israel, this promise that he made to them was based on their obedience. And because of their disobedience and rebellion, just like the previous generation had missed out on the covenant, so too is the current day one. And so the covenant, again, for you and I, the old covenant was broken with the cross. And for Israel, God still has a plan for them, as we see in Revelation, as we see in end times. But at the same time, they're outside of his will right now. Just as he has sworn to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, just as they walked in obedience, they would not only prosper, but they would enjoy all the blessings God had promised to their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I make this covenant and this oath not to you alone, but with him who stands here with us today, before the Lord our God, as well as with him who is not here with us today. Now, who is he speaking about? All the future generations of Jews. He was saying this covenant is the same. If they will walk in obedience to me, I will bless them. If they rebel against me, they will face the consequences of sin. And again, I know for a lot of us this is repetitive because we've been talking about this week after week, but there's a reason God continues to warn us about the consequences of disobedience. Because we keep disobeying. Amen? Am I the only one? I mean, we disobey God. And so he keeps warning us, guys, disobedience does have consequences. And we're going to see here in the next few verses that these consequences, again, can be very heavy, even when we think that nobody else knows. And again, this would be extended to future generations. If the future generations would walk in obedience, they would be blessed above all nations. They would have God's hand upon them. But if they disobeyed and rebelled, they would face the curses and righteous judgment of God. And we're going to see that at the end of this chapter. That's exactly what has happened today. Okay? Those of you who go to Israel with us will see a very clear picture of that when we get to the Dead Sea. Now, verse 1 through 8, he reminded them of all God had done for them, and now he calls them to walk in obedience. And finally, he's going to warn them of God's righteous judgment upon rebellion and disobedience. If you break my covenant, there will be consequences. You know what? If you obey God, there's blessing. If you repent of your sin, you have the promise of heaven. He was, Holy Spirit will come to live inside of you. You can walk in intimate fellowship with Almighty God. Those are all promises and they're all true. Equally true is disobey God, rebel against God, and face consequences of your sin. Now some people again would say, well that's just God playing a game and, you know, and if we obey then He loves us and if we don't. No, He still loves you. And the fact that He disciplined you, you proves how much He loves you because He wants to draw you back into right fellowship with Him again. Am I a loving dad if I let my kids do whatever they want? And there's no consequences for their actions? Absolutely not. I'm a horrible father. And he's perfect, holy God who loves us enough to bless us when we obey and to discipline us when we walk in disobedience. Verse 16 and 17. This is moving on to, again, the warnings against rebellion. For you know that we dwelt in the land of Egypt, that we came through the nations which we passed by. And you saw the abominations and their idols, which were among them, wood and stone, silver and gold. Now, as they were coming, they lived in Egypt, they were surrounded by idols. As they came out of Egypt, every nation they went through was filled with idol worship. The Edomites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Midianites, all of them idol worshipers. Now, one of two things would happen. If they have a heart devoted to God, they'd see the idols and they'd be sick. What is wrong with these people? At the same time, if their heart wasn't where it needed to be with the Lord, they'd be tempted. Ooh, look at that big gold idol. Now, I've, I've been to India a couple times. And you know what? It's amazing to me. I feel like when I go there, like I'm going back 
2,000 years in time. Told you guys this story on a Sunday morning. I'm driving down the road in a Jeep. We're headed out to this village to do a church service on a Monday night after teaching class all day and then doing teaching in the, in the Bible college and then teaching the pastor's conference and heading out. And we're driving along and I see all these people dressed in all red. Like, what is that about? I look over and I look to the side and there's a six-story tall monkey. And they're all worshiping the monkey. And I'm like... Is that the stupidest thing I've ever seen in my life? Now, he's saying the same thing here. You were driving through, you saw the idols, and if your heart was right with God, you'd say, that is stupid. If not, you might go, ooh, monkey. Get a picture with the monkey, right? Let me go rub the monkey. I don't know. I don't know what they're doing. So I walked over there. I thought, man, I'm going to go witness to some people who are, if you, got, if you like the monkey, let me introduce you to God. Amen? So I'm walking over there, and there was guards keeping me from the monkey. You've got to be a monkey worshiper to get near the monkey. Well, so we stood across the street and handed out tracts and shared the Lord with people. And I took a picture of this monkey, and I'm thinking, that is the dumbest thing. And you know what the sad part is? Everywhere I went, there was, you know, they have 30 million gods in Hinduism. 30 million. They have TV stations that are 24-hour, just gods. Different god comes on, like every three minutes. You could do that for the next 10,000 years, and you wouldn't get through all their gods. And it's so tragic because they're, wor they're worshiping things that they make. I told you about the one God right outside of my hotel. They have this idol that's got black horn. He got horns of this black face, and he's chewing on a baby. Blood dripping down his face, and people are walking by and throwing flowers to him. And I'm like, hey, Jesus, amen, risen and living Savior. And the sad part is, this is a land with a billion people, 99.9% .9 of which are serving these dead idols. And he's saying, you know what? You're going to walk by, you've seen them, you've seen them, you, know, you can walk with them, you can say, oh wow, look at the attraction, or you can say, that's foolishness. He said, you saw it. Now how are you going to respond? Now we know that these guys were so tempted to fall into idol worship that the Lord kept telling them, you've got to stay away from these guys. Because he knew that they wouldn't be impacting the idol worshipers as much as the idol worshipers would be impacting them. God knew the weakness of the children of Israel. The word there for abomination means filthy or disgusting. And every idol I've seen, that's a fact. All of them. And again, those with spiritual eyes would, would look at it and think, what is that? But others, no doubt, were being tempted. So look at the warning that he gives. So that there may not be among, among you man or woman or family or tribe whose heart turns away today from the Lord your God to go and serve the gods of these nations, and that there may be, not be among you a root-bearing bitterness of wormwood. Now here's what he's telling them. You stay away from the idols that are made out of wood and stone. You have nothing to do with them, that, the, that you may not turn away from them and start following them. This is a warning against idolatry, and nobody in Israel was to get, have anything to do with the idols. Because again, hearts turn away from God to go and serve other gods. That's what he says here. You know what's going to happen? If you get around these idols, you're going to turn away and follow them instead of serving the true and living God. Now, here's the application for you and I. We can only serve one God. And we may not have a six-story tall monkey in our backyard. At least I hope not. And in Santa Cruz, you'd probably be charging a mission and making a lot of money. Okay, But here's the thing. It's the true and living God or the gods of this world, whether it's a six-story tall monkey or it's money 
or its career, or its pleasure, or its a relationship, or its a hobby, or its entertainment. Now, is it okay to be entertained? Yes. Is it okay to have a hobby? Absolutely. Is it okay to be in relationships? Of course it is. But none of those things should ever come before God. Amen? God sh- must be first. And you know what? You know something sad? Football season comes, and we have guys who don't show up at church for 16 weeks. Until football season's over. Who's your God? The Raiders? That's as bad as a six-foot-tall monkey. Amen? It's just as stupid. And you know what the thing is? We will put other things before God, and we won't see them as idols, but they're no different. Because anything you put before God is an idol. If it's your car, if it's... You know, if you've got a girlfriend that you're more worried about what she thinks and what God thinks, you've got an idol. If you've got a boyfriend, same thing. You cannot put anything before God. The best thing you can do for your girlfriend, your boyfriend, your husband, your wife, your children is put God first. You do that, your wife will be blessed, amen? Your husband will be blessed, your children will be blessed. And so he's saying here, look, don't have anything to do with idols because if you do, look what it says at the end of that verse. There will be a root bearing bitterness or wormwood. The word there for wormwood is is the same word for hemlock. Poison. If one person gets involved in idol worship, it's going to poison all of Israel. If one family, one tribe, one person gets involved in worshiping the idols, it's going to impact the entire nation. And you know what? The same is true in the church today. As we turn away and get involved in idol worship, it impacts the entire church. If you're not here to use the gift God's given you, then we miss out. You have gifts I don't have, I have gifts you don't have. That's why we all need to be here, so we can minister one to another. So we can love on each other. We can care for each other. And again, here, that's idol worship was something that, again, would bring great harm to the church. One idolater could poison the whole nation. Verse 19, and he says there, And so it may not happen, when he hears the words of this curse, that he blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall have peace even though I follow the dictates of my heart, as though the drunkard could be included with the sober. Now, what is he talking about here? He blesses himself in his heart and says, I can have peace. Now, this is a warning towards these people who are involved in idolatry secretly and think nobody knows. They think they can live an idolatrous life, do it in secret, as long as nobody finds out, I can have peace. I can get over on God if I'm involved in it as long as nobody else knows. And it won't impact anybody, but he's saying that's not true. He's saying it's poison. It's a poison to the entire nation. Anybody who says, I have peace, has deluded himself if he's involved in idol worship. And it's shown there at the very end. He says, though the drunkard, though the drunkard could be included with the sober. As though the drunkard could be included with the sober. You know, a drunk person might be happy while they're drunk. But it's a false happiness that wears off when the alcohol wears off. Amen? And what he's saying here is, you know, there's those who are involved in idol worship who may think, and whatever that idol may be, whatever that pleasure may be, whatever that hidden sin may be, who think it's not impacting my walk with God, it's not impacting the church, it's not impacting anybody, nobody really knows, it's not a big deal, I can still be at peace with God and hang on to my hidden sin. No, you can't. If, if there's hidden sin in our lives, may we repent of it even tonight. Amen? Lord, forgive me. God knows. You might be able to fool the church, but you can't fool God. And what he's saying here very clearly is, look, this person might have, oh, I have peace in my heart, and 
saying, I, I shall have peace even though I follow the dictates of my heart. As though the drunkard pe- could be numbered with the sober. He's saying as if someone who's living this kind of a life could somehow be numbered with those who are walking with God. The reality is it brings poison into the nation. It brings poison into the body. It brings poison into your walk with God. It brings poison in your ability to minister to others. And whatever that hidden sin may be, God knows what it is. And here's the good news. Whatever it is, He loves you. And He'll forgive you. Amen? And He'll separate the sin as far as the east is from the west. But Pastor Dave, I've done it so many times. I've gotten involved in it so many times. God will never forgive me again. Yes, He will. Amen? Yes, He will. That's the lie of the enemy. He will forgive you. He loves you. You're His child. How many times would your, could your three-year-old come to you before you'd stop forgiving him? I told you to quit spilling that milk. That's it. Ten times enough. I'm done with you, right? Putting you out on the street. No, that's not going to happen. And we're imperfect parents. He's perfect, holy God. He loves us, you guys. He so desires to bless us. And again, this false peace of the wicked fades. But the peace that surpasses all understanding that comes from the Lord endures forever. Verse 20. The Lord will not spare him. For then, for then the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will burn against the man, and every curse that is written in this book would settle on him, and the, ward would, the Lord would blot him out, out his name from under heaven. How does God feel about hidden sin? Let me read that again. What is this list here? Let's go through it. The Bible says in Isaiah, There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. So if, if, they, if this person had this hidden sin, thought he had peace in his heart, could worship idols on the side and still pretend to serve God, nobody's found out about it, what's going to happen to him? The anger of the Lord, jealousy of God burning against him, every curse written in this book. How many people were here last week? How heavy was chapter 28? 68 verses, 54 of which were all curses. Right? Ouch. Now he's saying, you're going to get all the curses in the book. If you rebel against God and think you can serve idols and serve me at the same time. You know what? God is a jealous God and desires. He's not jealous of us. He's jealous for us because he loves us. And he desires that our heart and our passions be only toward him. So how does God feel about idol worship? Again, lastly, he said he'll blot his name out from under heaven. You know, if God is angry at you, that's not good. God angry at me. Not good. That's not good. I don't want that. How about you? Amen? You know, other people can be angry at me. I'll get over it. God angry at me? I don't, I don't want that. Verse 21. And the Lord would separate him from all the tribes of Israel for adversity according to all the curses of the covenant that are written in the book of the law. You know what else happens? For punishment, this righteous judgment, this man won't be able to hide and blend in with the righteous. So what's gonna, God going to do? He's going to separate him to keep him from poisoning the nation. This is a picture of church discipline. We are not to sit by, and again, I know this doesn't happen in the church very much today, but we need to love each other enough, if you see a brother living a totally rebellious, sinful life, to go up to him in love, Matthew 18, don't tell the church, don't run around and tell everybody, invite him out to coffee and say, bro, I'm concerned about your walk. We need more of that in the church today, amen? We need more people that love each other enough to do that. Oh, it's being judgmental. No, it's being a brother. It's being a sister. It's loving each other enough. And what he's saying here is, you know what? Because of the sin, he's going to separate them. He's going to take him out. Why? Because if he leaves him there, he's only going to poison the whole nation. And if we don't address the sin within the body, now I'm not talking about every sin because that's all of us. Amen? 
What I'm talking about is where we're living in rebellion against God and we just don't care. Yeah, I'm, I'm sleeping with my girlfriend. I don't care. Tough. Yeah, I'm living with I don't care. I'm doing it anyway. I don't care. Too bad. Right? Yeah, I'm doing that. Yeah, I got found, yeah I'm, I'm struggling with alcohol. Yeah, I'm struggling with drugs. I don't care. Going to do it. Too bad. Come to church on Sunday. You know what? We need to love them enough to put our arm around them and say, bro, you're trying to serve idols in God at the same time. And you can't do that. And you know what? I know you don't have peace in the midst of it. You may have temporary peace when you're high on the drug, but it's going to come down, and then you're going to be brokenhearted over your sin. You know what? The Lord loves you. It's time for repentance and restoration, that we might enter into God's highest. Now, where is he telling them all this? Remember, they're in Moab. They're about to enter into the land of promise, God's highest. And he's preparing them with all of these warnings, again, of the potential punishment for disobedience. Now, again, a lot of people look at this and say, man, God's kind of a rough God. No, he's not. He's a loving God. You've heard me say it many times. The God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament. No, he's not. It's the same God. But you know what? He loves them enough to bring discipline when necessary because he wants to draw them back into right fellowship. Verse 22 and 23. So that the coming generation of your children who rise up after you and the foreigner who comes from a far land would say when they see the plagues of that land and the sickness which the Lord has laid on it, the whole land is brimstone and salt and burning. It is not sown, nor does it bear, nor does any grass grow like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zebulun, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and his wrath. Now, you know what's going to happen? If the nation followed the idolaters and disobeyed the Lord, then God would judge the whole land and it would become an example to others of what happens when you disobey God. He's saying when people came up on Sodom and Gomorrah, what do you think they thought? Come on, Sodom and Gomorrah went, whoa, what happened there? Right? That was a beautiful... You remember coming by here a couple years ago on the way to Grandma's house, right? What happened to that city over there on the left? Oh, it got smoked. What happened? Oh, they were caught up in homosexuality and sexual perversion, and God brought, you know, hellfire down and smoked the place. Really? Oh, we shouldn't do that, right? I mean, that's the point. The point is, oh, what's that big pillar of salt over there? Oh, that's Lot's wife. She was looking back, right? And the point is he's, he, that each one of these devastated lambs would be a testimony to future generations and even the foreigners and even unbelievers that, you know what? Their God is God because he brings righteous judgment upon rebellion. So even today, when God brings righteous judgment upon rebellion, it's a testimony to the world that our God is God. And that's the point that he's making. Now, it's interesting that people would ride up and see a land where nothing could grow, where everything was falling apart, where there, was no, there were farms without produce and lands in ruins. And you know what's interesting? I was reading a, a story one time of a pastor who's a friend of mine actually in a, in a commentary, a guy that I know. And he was in Israel, and they were going into the Dead Sea, and there was an American guy there who was very wealthy, who was in the, the train with them. And they're going to the Dead Sea, and he goes, Man, what happened here? I've never seen anything so desolate in my life. You know what the guy did? He opened up his Bible to Deuteronomy chapter 28 and started reading from verse 23 down. And said, this is a fulfillment right here of God's righteous judgment. Because if you've been to the Dead Sea, nothing grows there. It's dead. I mean, it's desolate as it gets. You cannot believe how desolate that region is. You know why? Rebellion. God fulfilled this scripture. And when people see it, foreigners will even say, even thousands of years later, what in the world happened here? Because you don't go far away from there. 
and it's green and it's lush. And then you get to the Dead Sea and there's nothing can grow there. You got to bring in whatever they've got, they bring from out of the area because nothing will grow there. We learn a lot from calamity. Sin brings upon those in rebellion. You know what? We can learn from the, re- from the consequences of sin in other people's lives as well. You know what? If you see someone in adultery and you see their family fall apart, and you see that their kids don't want anything to do with them anymore, that should be a lesson to every one of us. Amen? When you see alcoholism, what it does, when you see drug use, when you see greed or lying or being unequally yoked or whatever it might be, you see the consequences of it and we should learn from it. Not point fingers at people, pray for them. Amen? But at the same time, they're great lessons for every single one of us when we see the consequences of sin around us. I'll tell you what, one thing about being a pastor and doing a lot of counseling, you know, God forbid anything ever happens to my wife, I'm done, I'm not getting, because man, that unequally yoke thing, it's not good. You get married to an unbeliever, not good. I sit there and I go, man, what were you, th-? And, and now understand this, if you've, if you're married and then you got saved and your spouse doesn't know God, then pray for him and love him and be a godly example in your home. Amen? And you should stay married to him and you should be the most Christ-like person they ever meet. And you pray for him and love him and minister to him, invite him to church and love all over him. If you're not married and you're thinking about marrying an unbeliever, don't. I've got about 30 people here at church you can talk to. Because they will tell you, it's not good. And we somehow think we're special case. Yeah, but, you know, I understand what the Bible says, but he's so nice to me. He doesn't know God. Yeah, but he's really nice. Well, he can't have agape love because that comes only from the Holy Spirit. Yeah, but he's really nice. No, it's not going to work. And you know what's sad? They marry him anyway, because I won't marry him, so they run off to Vegas or somewhere, and then two months later, they're back him up. It's not working. I told you. And it breaks my heart now. I'm like, well, you're married now, so now we've got to work on your marriage. But I don't want to. I want to quit. You can't quit now. It's too late. You wait, you know, and it amazes me. It happens over and over and over. And I'm like, man. I, you know, and I just, want to, I just want to shake people sometimes. Are you, are you out of your mind? I feel like having an unequally yoked anonymous class or something, right? <laughs> oh, if you've ever been unequally yoked, come on up here and explain it to everybody else. You know what? I thought it was going to be great, and it was not. It's not good, okay? Don't fall into that trap. Now, again, here's the good news. God, in spite of it, saves that unsafe person in your marriage often, amen? amen? And praise God for that, and we want to see that happen, and if you're here tonight and your spouse doesn't know God, we keep praying, and you keep loving them, and you keep ministering to them. But I tell you what, you're missing out on God's highest if you settle for less. Almost done here. Look at verse 24 through 27. All the nations will say, why has the Lord done this to this land? Sodom and Gomorrah and places like the Dead Sea. Why have they done it to this land? What does the heat of this great anger mean? Then the people would say, Because they have forsaken the covenant of the Lord of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. For they went and served other gods and worshipped them, gods that they did not know that he had not given to them. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against the land to bring it on every curse that is written in this book. He says, Strangers are going to say, Whoa, what happened here? Oh, you didn't hear Sodom and Gomorrah, they were outside of God's will, started idol worship, God rained down on them. And you know what, that's exactly the testimony that Israel had so much of their history for doing these very same things. Look at the last couple of verses. And the Lord uprooted them 
from their land in anger and wrath and great indignation and cast them into the, another land as it is this day. Guess what? This is fulfilled numerous times in, in Israel's history. Talked about this, I won't go into a lot of detail. In 606 B.C. and 586 B.C., King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians came in and because of idolatry running rampant in Israel, what did he do? They were taken away captive, just like this verse says. And guess when the ultimate fulfillment was? In 70 A.D., and then, then again finished up in 135 A.D., when the Romans came in and not only took them captive and wiped out Jerusalem completely, the first time they took the temple and wiped it out, and they just tore down every act of worship. But the last, in 135, they destroyed the city and put it to the ground and changed its name from Jerusalem to Palestine. From being the ones who serve the true and living God to the land of the Palestinians. The false gods. What happened? Idolatry. What happened? False god worship. He says when they do it, this is what's going to happen. The Bible is very clear. This was written hundreds of years before it took place. Last verse. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us, to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Now here's the good news. Do you know there are things that God, that God will never reveal to us? It says the secret things belong to God. Are there things that God will never, will never get or understand about God? Aren't you glad? People say, well, I don't get it. I'm like, well, duh, he's God. Aren't you glad you don't serve a God you can fully get? He'd have to be pretty finite for me to totally figure him out. Because I'm not that sharp. Amen? I'm glad that he's way greater than I think, way more powerful than I think, way more awesome than I think. But, look at the last part of this verse, and we'll close with this. He says, but those things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. So... There are many great things about God we don't fully understand, but everything He has shown to us, we need to obey. Everything He's revealed to us, we must obey. So we'll see here that God doesn't declare everything to man, but God does reveal some things, and what He does reveal to us, we are to obey completely. And those things that He reveals to us, again, we should pass on to the next generation. So in closing, turning back to God. If you're here tonight... Know that God does care about us walking in obedience. Know that you can't walk in obedience by you trying harder. You walk in obedience by being desperate for God, broken before Him, constantly seeking His face, and crying out for His help constantly. Lord, help me. I can't do it. Lord, help. Great place to be. If you're outside of God's will, if you're struggling in your walk with God right now, as you've heard me say many times, it's a million steps away from God, it's only one step back. He's a loving God. Whatever you've done, he'll forgive you even tonight. You can walk out of here with a clean slate with the Lord, walking in the center of his will. They're about to enter into Moab. He said, put all that stuff aside from you so you can enter in. For you and I, if we want to enter into that spirit-filled life, we need to take all that stuff and set it aside and make God the priority of our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We praise you for your word. And we thank you, Lord, for the promises in it. Help us, Lord, to be men and women who serve you with our whole heart. Lord, I do pray for anybody here tonight that's struggling with a hidden or secret sin or whatever it might be, Lord, just any struggle that there might be. Father, I pray that tonight would be the night we come before you broken and say, Lord, forgive me. Lord, help me to walk away from this. Help me to walk in the center of your will. Lord, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, let's stand and close the worship song.